1 Kings 12, verse 25 to 13, verse 10. So just to locate this in our minds, um, we just had the kingdom of Solomon here, which was the peak of Israelite prosperity. And Solomon had a son called Rehoboam who... um, did not follow in the footsteps of his father, and so the kingdom split. And the southern half was Judah, the northern half was the remaining tribes called Israel, and Jeroboam who was a construction superintendent, I think, for, um, for the building projects he became king. And um, this part of Scripture tells us how Jeroboam set up a pair of golden calves, and we're going to read that in connection with what we confess about the second commandment in Lord's Day 25, 35, sorry. So, 1 Kings 12, verse 25 to 13, verse 10. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So we did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. And behold, the man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. 
And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. So far, we also now turn to Lord's Day 35 of the Catechism. Lord's Day 35, continuing our study of the Ten Commandments, page 552. What does God require in the Second Commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship Him in any other manner than He has commanded in His Word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity. No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, boys and girls, have you ever drawn a picture in church? Maybe your parents told you that you were allowed to draw, but only if it has to do with a sermon. So maybe you drew a stick figure of a stick minister in a big square pulpit. Or maybe you drew a picture of a story that you knew, Jonah and the big fish, or something like that. It could even be that you have a whole notebook full of pictures. Now, if you look at that notebook, and you look back at what you drew six months or a year or two years ago, then you see that the pictures usually get better over time, don't they? Eventually, you don't need to draw pictures at all anymore. Instead, you listen to the preaching. Or at least that's how it should go. There are some people, though, who never outgrow the need for pictures. Many people in the northern kingdom of Israel didn't either during the time of Jeroboam. Jeroboam had a a pair of golden calves made to help them worship God. And these calves were like a picture of what the people thought God should be like. Now that's sin against the second commandment. God hates it when people make an image of him. It makes him jealous. The second commandment contains drastic consequences for people who attempt to worship him in this way. He promises to curse them to the third and fourth generations. He even implies that image worship is a form of hatred for him. So Lord's Day 35, in in explaining this commandment, extrapolates it to mean that we are not to worship God in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. But why is that? Why does the Lord 
command this? And this afternoon, we'll try to answer the question from two angles, that he does so for his glory, and he does so for our good. Now, one thing we should establish, which, which may in some way be obvious, but maybe not, is that any image by nature is going to be disrespectful to God, no matter how good it is. That's because God is incomparable. God is the creator. God has made all things, and he is beyond all of them. He is totally separate from his creation. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be separate. And God alone is holy within himself. Everything else that is holy has a derivative holiness that is separated by God on some level, but God alone is holy in the very essence of his being. He is separated from all that he has made. God is the creator. So any attempt at trying to capture God's glory is going to be necessarily incomplete, and so it will be a lie. As it says in Isaiah 40, to whom then will you liken God, or with what likeness compare him? And in Hosea 8, he says, with their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. So he insists on being worshipped as he is. He does not want to be reduced by human hands or human thoughts in any way, shape, or form. You cannot capture God in an image. As Jesus later on said to the woman at the well of Samaria, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But even if you worship him in spirit, you will never comprehend him. We will know nothing about God unless he reveals himself to us. He is completely free. He cannot be captured even by our thoughts. This is why making an image of God is so disrespectful. It is disrespectful towards God's self-revelation, towards what he has revealed about himself. It's an attempt to enter into a relationship with God on your own terms. Now remember last week we talked about how, how heathens do this. We talked about um, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. And we talked about how an idol to a heathen is an attempt at capturing the essence of this other god. In this kind of thinking, the relationship between God and an image is a little bit like the relationship between the sun and a solar panel. The solar panel helps you to capture some of the energy from the sun and to manage it, to, to turn it into something that you can work with. And that, that dynamic does not change just because you happen to to make an image of the true God. The problem is still the same. It's still an attempt at, at manipulation. And any relationship, any relationship for anyone at any time that is based on manipulation and control is doomed to failure. It's dysfunctional. Especially when it attempts to take away the glory that God deserves. Now this aspect of misuse and manipulation really comes to the foreground in our reading from this afternoon. You got King Jeroboam, and he had become king over the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jeroboam was a, an intelligent man. He, he realized that religion can serve as a powerful tool for uniting the country. 
He didn't want the loyalty of his subjects to return to King Rehoboam. So he made two calves of gold. And these two calves, the word translated as calf, indicates that it was a bull calf. These were bull calves. Now, I imagine especially the uh, younger brothers and sisters would think, well, why, why a bull? Does that mean that he thought that God looked like a cow or a bull? The answer is no. God, he didn't think that. Nobody thought that. But the point is what the image represents. And, and a, a bull was the strongest thing that they could imagine. It's using the strength of an animal and, and, and channeling it into productivity. Bull calf. The calf image represented power. It was, so to speak, an embodiment of God's power. It was also used by, by heathen nations, that same imagery. And Jeroboam wants to take this power and this, this association of power, and he wants to use it for his own control. Blatant sin against the second commandment. But here's what makes it interesting. What makes it interesting is that he still wanted to connect it to existing religious tradition. He wanted the weight of religious tradition to lend respectability to, his, to this worship. And you see that reflected, for example, in the location. A part of the reason for the location, Dan and Bethel, is strategic. Dan, if you look at the map, Dan was near the northern border of his kingdom. Bethel was near the southern border with Judah. But Dan was also where the grandson of Moses had served as a priest to the people of Dan. Now, the grandson obviously had, had done wrong there, but he was connected to Moses. And so, so there's a little bit of the, the, the weight of, of the old Mosaic religious authority coming through here. And Bethel was where Jacob had encountered God, remember? Later on, the Ark of the Covenant was kept at Bethel. So these places are not just strategic. They have this religious weight to them. They were places with religious history. And this man, Jeroboam, wanted to use the weight of that religious history for his own ends. Don't think for one minute that this only happened 3,000 years ago. The misuse of religion for political ends was not only limited to the days of King Jeroboam. More recently, former President Donald Trump did the same thing. And maybe, maybe in this congregation there might be different opinions as to Donald Trump and what he did and didn't do and whether he was good or bad, but all of that is irrelevant to this one particular illustration. Um, Trump, on June 1st, 2020, during the George Floyd riots, um, had himself photographed beside a church. You might remember that. Protesters were cleared from St. John's Episcopal Church so that Trump and admin officials could walk to this church, and he had himself photographed beside this church holding a Bible. Do you remember that? Those of you that, that read the news in 2020, it was a very striking image. Donald Trump standing there holding a Bible beside this church. It was meant to highlight his message of law and order. But if you think about it, this was no different at all to what Jeroboam had done. Trump was using the weight of God's word and the long history of the church to advance his own political cause. And we might agree with the cause, with law and order. Law and order are good things. But this was still a clear and reprehensible misuse of religion for political ends. If he had gone there simply to, to pray quietly during the riots, that would have been different. 
but he went there to be photographed. He specifically went there, in a sense, to have a photographic image of him made beside this church holding this Bible so that he could give the weight of religious tradition to his message of law and order. That is a clear violation of the second commandment. No less than if he had made an image of God and worshipped it. Now why do people want to do that? Why did Jeroboam want to do this? Why do people want to worship God using an image anyway? Well, an image, again, is man's attempt at securing a blessing from God. That's what it means to worship on your own terms. It means to get God's blessing on your own terms. And the reason why this doesn't work is because of the covenant. The covenant is the only ground that there is for God's blessing. That's the only way you'll ever get God's blessing is through the covenant. Why? Because the covenant is guaranteed and underwritten by the blood of Christ. In two weeks, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper again. Think of these words from the forum under the heading, Remembrance of Christ. Think of these words. He even let his blessed body be nailed to the cross so that he might cancel the bond which stood against us because of our sins. By all this, he has taken our curse upon himself that he might fill us with his blessing. See, God does give us a blessing, but he does it on his own terms. And these are the only terms that he will ever accept. The blood of Jesus Christ poured out for the remission of all our sins. But he does so freely. Nobody compels him to do that. Nobody manipulates him to do that. Nobody could. But there's no need to try anyway. There's no need to have images. There's no need to try and control him. There's no need because God is gracious and generous These things are hard for us to grasp because we're afraid. Probably far more than we would like to admit our our life of faith is motivated by fear, if we're honest. We're afraid of losing God's blessing. Maybe not the spiritual side, but certainly the material manifestations of that blessing. So we try to control it. And we, we might never make an image to do so, but we worry a lot. Who here does not worry about something? We worry about our health. We worry about our parenting. We worry about what we wear. We worry about, our, worry about our diet. We worry about the state of the country. We worry about the church. We worry about all sorts of things. Why do we do that? It's almost as if we think we can hold on to the blessing of God through constant worry. How is that any different from someone trying to hold on to the blessing of God by making an image? In both cases, you're still trying to hold on to his blessing on your own terms, Life in the covenant is not meant to be secured. It's meant to be received. You cannot secure God's covenant blessings for yourself. You cannot hold on to them. You cannot retain them. All you can do is receive them as a free gift. And that is an act of God's free grace. He is not obligated to give us anything. God is free. He did not even tie himself to the temple in the Old Testament. The people in the days of Jeremiah the prophet thought that they could rely on the weight of their religious heritage to protect them when they were disobedient. Here's what God said to them. I will do to that house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. 
And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. So God did not even tie himself to the institutions that he had previously enabled in order for the people to worship him. But he did tie himself to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the guarantor of the covenant. In him, all of the blessings of the covenant are ours. We do not need to make an image of God. We do not need to wrangle a blessing from him like Esau did with his father Isaac when he said to him, Me too, give me also a blessing, my father. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That's from Ephesians. And as Paul said in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? That's God's glory. And he doesn't want us to therefore worship him in any other manner than what he has commanded in his word. He doesn't want us to take what he is willing to give. Not to take it from him when he is willing to give it to us. He wants us to receive. From that perspective, it's interesting to note how the words of Jeroboam echo the words of the people when Aaron made the golden calf. One of the most shameful episodes in the whole book of Exodus. Moses was receiving the law on the mountain and the people on the foot of the mountain were making a golden calf. Exactly the same scenario, trying to capture the glory of God in an image. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Jeroboam uses those same words without a hint of irony. And in doing so, he rejected God's covenant. With that, he rejected the Christ of the covenant who was to be born. In the second commandment, God promises drastic punishments for those who reject this commandment to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. That generational longevity is reflected somewhat in the words of the prophet who comes to Jeroboam. The prophet warns that a son will be born to the house of David who will take vengeance on those who serve at Jeroboam's altar. And, and that son will be born, but in that prophecy we see prefigured the other son of David, Jesus himself, who will one day utterly reject all those who share in this kind of false worship. He will not give his glory to another. He won't do it. Why does God call us not to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word? We've seen that he does so for his glory. He also does so for our good. That is our second point. God longs for his people. He longs for the work of his hands. He longs for what he has redeemed in Christ no false god could ever be as close to its worshipers as our God is to his people. He was the one who first established a bond with them by promise. He sealed that bond in the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the one who took initiative in all of that. God is not erratic. He is not capricious. He does not change his mood from one moment to the next. He is always present always there for his people no matter what their circumstances and that presence we can experience every day through his word we can commune with him through his word every day he 
communes with us through his word. Every day he renews our hearts and minds. Every day he fills our lives with his blessing. The living God gives us the living word. The word is so wrapped up in our day-to-day life. But on Sunday, we come especially to hear that word preached. That's how God communes with us. That's what he wants. That's our point of contact with him, so to speak. He says, it says in the catechism, he wants his people to be taught, not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. And boys and girls, dumb here is not dumb in the sense of stupid. It's dumb in the sense of mute, in the sense of not being able to speak. God does not want his people to be taught by means of mute images, but by the living preaching of his word. That is how you get to know him. This is central to the second commandment. The catechism works with a strong contrast here. The images are dumb, they're dead, but the preaching of God's word is alive. It has a life of its own. It goes out and it does not return empty. It is a two-edged sword. It cuts down to the bones, to the marrow, to the heart. God's word is powerful. God's word is a word of life. Have we made that life our own? What does it look like in your day-to-day existence? Do you come to church prepared? Physically, mentally, spiritually? Or do you come to church unprepared? What about our youth? Do you come to church with a Bible, maybe a notebook and a pen? Or do your parents constantly have to remind you to take all that stuff along? Do you come prepared to listen, or are you slouching in the pew, indifferent to what is going on? What about sleep? Are you getting enough sleep the night before or are you dozing off during the service? Why do you doze off? What were you doing the night before? What are your true priorities in life? What are your priorities in life? These are all second commandment issues. You cannot separate these things. You can't have it both ways. Somebody who comes to church but regularly falls asleep during church or who tunes out has lost their sense of awe. Church and the preaching have become a predictable routine to them. In other words, this person has created a mental image of God. To this person, God is not that interesting because if he was, they would pay more attention. So they worship him in a manner other than he has commanded in his word. There's no sense of privilege at being here. There's no sense of amazement. There's no sense of joy. There's no awe. There's just this religious routine that really means nothing. But this is a denial of our whole reason for existing. We were created to worship. This is what we were made for. Our whole lives were meant for God's glory. Think about what we confess in Lord's Day 3. God created man good and in his image that is in true righteousness and holiness so that he might rightly know God as creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. That's what we were made for. Worship in every facet of our existence, to know God, to be conformed to his image, and to spend all of eternity growing in that. And if we then disengage from that worship on the very day when we should be the most focused, the very day when we are most prepared for our, our future, then we're taking away from God's glory. That is sin against the second commandment. 
The God of our imagination doesn't take the faith seriously, so why should we? If that describes you when you have children, the second commandment warns us that there are drastic consequences to these things. This attitude will destroy your children. It will destroy your family. It is a disguised form of hatred against God. God promises that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's what he says, and that shows us how seriously he takes this. But true heartfelt worship also has consequences, marvelous consequences, for then we live out of the riches of our covenant relationship in Jesus Christ. He promises to show us covenant love, steadfast love to thousands of those who love him, or as it can be translated to a thousand generations of those who love him. He visits his his punishment to the third and fourth generations, but his love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. And that shows us how true faith unites and it also shows us that parents do not need to be afraid. If you, if you try, if you love the Lord, if you come here faithfully, if you worship faithfully, God blesses that. There are blessings. And maybe you might not even see the blessing right away in your own family. Maybe there's troubles in your family, but there's still a, a blessing that he promises even to the descendants of the descendants. Steadfast love, covenant love. True faith in the home is such a blessing for parents and their children. That is why anything that reduces that faith is to be rejected. And you should think carefully about this, parents. You really should. Is there anything in your home that is harming the faith life of your children? Think. Think. Is there anything in your home that is harming the faith life of your children? Or to put it in the opposite way, do the things in your home help the faith life of your children? We, we enjoy great material affluence in our Reformed subculture, so we have a lot of disposable time. Uh, more and more people, more and more of our youth are involved in things like video gaming. Uh, they can buy a whole range of different kinds of music. They have their own phones. They can spend time on social media. All of those familiar 21st century things. And a lot of those are potentially very problematic the games they play, the time they spend on social media, the music they listen to, the books they read, how much of that is act, actually helping their faith life? Nothing in life is neutral. You might say, well, it doesn't seem to be doing any harm. But nothing in life is neutral. Everything is ultimately connected to faith or it comes back to faith. If your child is showing indifference or nominal interest to matters of faith, and is much more interested in things that have nothing to do with faith, maybe as parents you should rethink the sorts of things that you allow in your home. You don't have much time left for this. You really don't. It's your home, isn't it? You're in charge. God calls us to a living relationship with him. The greatest blessing that any human being could ever hope for. That's why we see this longing for communion with God expressed in so many of the Psalms. So many of the Psalms are, are reaching out to God, a longing for God. Psalm 42, Psalm 84, Psalm 16, pretty much any Psalm you mention has some aspect of, of desiring God. We see this longing for communion with God expressed, but we can only receive that blessing 
of communion with him through the living preaching of his word. Through his word. He did not reveal himself through images. He revealed himself through his word. And yes, of course, that is worked in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Of course, we do not deny the work of the Holy Spirit in this. But, but the word, the word is central. The word is a seed of regeneration. Scripture says that. The living preaching of the word is important. He didn't reveal himself through images. He revealed himself through his word. The word shows who he is. The best an image can ever do is tell you what an artist thought God was like at the point in time that that image was made. That's true, whether it's painting, images, or anything. Novels, you name it. God's word shows us who he actually is. It shows us what he does. It shows us what he has done in history through Jesus Christ. It reveals his deeds. God is a God who acts, who shows us who he is through his words and his actions. His word is living and active. And so when Jeroboam led the people astray, God sent his word to intervene. The word was delivered by a prophet. And imagine the wickedness of Jeroboam who refused to repent. Remember, making an image is about control, isn't it? What did Jeroboam do? He does whatever he can to get the situation back under control. He doesn't repent. Instead, he switches back to manipulation. He attempts to offer hospitality to this prophet and to to promise him a gift. It's manipulation. He tries to buy him. And he shows that even there, after receiving a direct sign from God, he does not take the second commandment seriously at all. But are we really that different? Is this not a grotesque, blown-up version of, of an ugly truth that lives in all of us? All of us were meant to be God's image bearers. We have all failed in doing so. That's why we need Jesus. The second commandment tells us that we cannot see the Father, but Jesus did. He bore the curse for us. Also the curse of the second commandment. The curse, he bore it in its entirety. As we confess in Lord's Day 32, Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image. So he renews us so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits and he may be praised by us. Through him we are freed from the curse. Through him we have forgiveness. Through him we have renewal. We're renewed every day. We worship him more and more with our whole life. May we always do so for his glory. And may it lead to our ultimate good. Amen.